Well, there was nighttime in John's gospel when a religious leader named Nicodemus came to Jesus to question him about his ministry. Nicodemus said to Jesus as a religious leader, he said, Jesus, we know that you've come from God because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. They couldn't dispute the miracles that he was doing and the power with which he ministered. They said, we know that you come from God. And Jesus' answer to Nicodemus was really interesting. He said to him, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You have to be born into this kingdom. It was kind of Jesus' way of saying, Nicodemus, uh, here you are calling me like I'm on trial, like you are inspecting me. And I want you to understand something. You can't inspect me unless you're even born again. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus said, what in the world does it mean to be born again? And Jesus went on to explain the gospel message to Nicodemus and that when we enter into belief and what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are born again. This is part of what we've been studying here in the book of Romans, that mankind is dead in trespasses and sins and that we need to be transferred from death into life Last week we saw it described as from Adam into Christ. We need this in our lives, and the only way for it to happen is for us to be born again. And if you really look at the first five chapters of Romans, as Paul is explaining the message of the gospel, what he's doing over and over again is just simply saying, this is the bad that man has done and that man is in. He is lost in his sin. He is dead in trespasses and sins. He is under this thing called sin. And then here's the beautiful thing that God himself has done in providing a righteousness for mankind apart from the works of the law, but through the life and sacrifice of Jesus, that if we would believe on him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. So really, when you look at Romans 1 through 5, if, if you're to look at those chapters and say to yourself, what am I to do? What is the exhortation for me? What is the big take home that I'm to have? Aside from understanding these truths about the gospel message, what am I to take home? What am I to do? The big thing of those first five chapters is belief. Receive the message of the gospel. Believe it. Receive it. Appropriate it. Understand it. Consider it. Wrestle with the truth and continue to believe it. Those are the big exhortations that Paul uh, gives to us. But now as we move into Romans chapter 6, Paul has laid out the gospel message. He's told us the plan of salvation. He's told us of the lostness of man and that God looked through all of that lostness. He saw in the immoral world and all of its brokenness and rebellion against God. He saw the moral world. He saw the religious world. And he looked at all of it and said, I love you guys. I want to make a way for you to be made right with me. You can't get it in your immoral state. You can't get it through your moral condition thinking that, well, I'm a little better than this person, so I should be accepted by God. You can't get it that way. You can't get it through religious traditions and attendance and baptisms and ceremonies. You can't get it through any of those things. You can only get it through the blood of Jesus. You receive it. But he's saying, I love you guys. You can't get it that way, but I love you. And I want 
you to have a way to be made reunited uh, together with me. And so you have the cross, the gospel message. You believe it like Abraham. It's deposited to us for righteousness. And we are shifted, Paul said, from Adam into Christ. But then the question that we ask is the same question that's found in verse 1 of chapter 6. We say, what shall we say then? What do we say to all this? I mean, let's just pause for a second and be honest. Like, what do we say to this? This is an incredible thing. We're not preaching, you know, some kind of works righteousness like everybody else. We're not saying you have to follow all these different steps. You have to obey these certain laws and requirements, and then you get the favor of God. We're saying nothing of the sort. We're saying God did everything. The thing that we brought to the table was brokenness despair depravity we brought that to the table and god did all of this and we just simply have to believe it and we're born again it's an astounding message and so on one one hand we would say what do we say then we just have to like sing and rejoice and celebrate it's beautiful i don't want to say that it's easy because it does require a brokenness an agreement a humility and for many people that has not come easy to to submit to the truth of god's word and to humble out before the living and righteous god but it's very simple and wonderful and powerful and wouldn't we say this completely one on the side of God. I mean, he just does all of this for us. What do we say then? Well, we write songs and we celebrate and we rejoice. But there's more than that question that Paul wants to ask. Notice it in verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's an interesting question. What do we do now about sin? How do we move forward in this life? If it is all God, if he looks at our sin and he just crushes us with his grace, then what are we supposed to do about sin now? How are we to live now? And in fact, what we saw last week at the end of Romans chapter 5 is that Paul had said, when we were in Adam, the law came, and when the law came, sin abounded. The more the speed limit was placed around the town, We broke the law. So the more the law was there, the more sin abounded. But then Paul said, and where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. How many of you have ever discovered that? You went, maybe you received the Lord, you walked with the Lord, and you're like, cool, thank you for God, thank you for your grace. And then you went and did something that was so disobedient to the Lord, you went into levels of darkness that you kind of thought, like, I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to be that person. But then you went there, or you caught a little glimpse of your own heart, and you went into that realm, and then right there you were able to confess your sin to the Lord. He was able to restore you and bring you back into fellowship with himself. And you discovered that as I sinned and as my sin abounded, God's grace abounded much more than even my own sin. It's a powerful reality, isn't it? It's an incredible thing to consider that you could take a thousand steps away from him and he is one step away in returning to him. That's a powerful reality. It's incredible to consider that you could be that prodigal child that runs away from God, runs away from your father, but has a moment of lucidity and you say to yourself, I'm gonna go back to my father, ask him to just make me a slave, but he puts the ring on your finger and a robe around you and kills the fatted calf and says, my child has returned. It's incredible grace, isn't it? 
But the question is, if that's the case, if in the midst of my sin, grace abounds, then, or, then the question is, should we then continue in sin that grace would abound? That's the question that's asked in verse 1. Should we respond to this grace by sinning more so that grace uh, can uh, abound? One way to think of this is with the light of the sun. Today's a beautiful day, right? We're going to go enjoy this. If you're not local, you know, and you're like new to the peninsula, like when it's like this, go enjoy it because it might not last forever. You know, it just, sometimes people are like, is this what it's like here? Is this the summer? Like, no, it's not like that. I didn't know about the sun in the summer months my whole childhood. Uh, You know, so you just enjoy it when you can, but it's very nice outside. It's very bright. We got some natural light coming into this room right now, but when we leave and walk outside, there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment process. You know, like, well, it'll be bright. Some of us will put our sunglasses on. But if we were in a cave where there was little to no natural light and we walked out into the same level of brightness, there would be a very extreme reaction, right? Your eyes would hurt. You'd close your eyes. You're just waiting to get adjusted. So kind of the concept there is, should we go deeper and darker into sin so that God's grace is even more marvelous and brighter and powerful and more beautiful? Should we do that? Now, we know that Paul isn't going to say yes. Right, we already know that. We read it, but we kind of anticipate it. Like He's not going to say, like, that's a great idea. Sin more so that grace can abound. We, we, we know that. But this was an argument that some people were making during Paul's day. He wrestled with it a little bit in chapter 3, but didn't answer the question. He's going to answer it here. Uh, the name for this, for people who would say, yes, we should sin so that grace can abound, we put a name on them. They're called antinomians. Nomos is the Greek word for law, the moral law of God. So to be anti that, to say I don't need God's restrictions over my life, I don't need his direction over my life, I can be disobedient to God, and as I reject obedience to God, his grace actually marvelously shines into uh, my life. That's what that kind of uh, person is. And this was a problem in the New Testament church, in the New Testament era. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wanted to write a little letter about our common salvation, but he says, I couldn't write about our common salvation, and the reason for it is because, and this is what he says in Jude verse 4, he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there were people in the early church era who were saying, we should keep on sinning so that grace can abound. And they took the grace of God and perverted it and twisted it into a thing that led them to a life of license doing whatever they want because of uh, the stated grace of God. Now, we might ridicule this kind of concept and idea, but which one of us has not been guilty of at least a little antinomianism from time to time? Saying to ourselves, it's all good. God will forgive me for this. Entering into something that we know to be sinful, an appetite we know to be excessive or wrong, or even 
going the other direction and saying, here's an area of obedience that God wants me to enter into, but I don't feel like it, I don't want to, but it's okay because his mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient for me. And if, when we go through that process, we're going through the same thing of sinning all the more that grace might abound. We haven't properly understood the gospel message when that is our response to uh, God's grace. It is a real question. All of us at t- from time to time have said, grace will cover it. I'm fine. It's okay. God will forgive. And really, we are correct when we make that statement, God will forgive, God can forgive, but that is no way to live the Christian life. And so Paul begins to explain to the Ro- Roman church how they're to think about things. And he's going to give them, in these four verses, three things that really stand out to me. First of all, he's going to use the word no. I'm going to give you a cheesy preacher outline right now, so just for a little warning here. He's going to use the word no. You, you don't want to have this attitude. Secondly, he's going to say there are some things you need to know within the realm of your mind, an understanding about your unity with Christ. And then thirdly, there's a newness of life that you need to walk in. So no, no, and new, something new for us, okay? So that's my cheesy outline. I just had to say it because I, I just thought it was awesome personally. But uh, okay, so <laughs> let's get into this uh, together. His answer, verse 2, by no means. This is his answer, by no means. By no means. No way, that's, that's not going to be the Christ-like Christian attitude that we'll sin all the more that grace may abound. We reject that. Vehemently, we reject it. The other translations say, may it never be, or no, we should not, or far from it, or God forbid. Like, we're not going there. We're not going to have that attitude. It's not legitimate in the life of a believer to say, I will, I'll sin more so that God's grace can be made manifest. I will not presume upon, I will not take advantage of the grace of God by no means, he says. But then he asks a question. So he says, no. I'm not going to have that attitude. But then he asks a question, and here's what it is. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul looks at us. He looks at the Roman church. He looks at himself, and he says, we. As believers, born again, we. Something has happened to us, and this is what it is. We have died to sin. How can we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? Now, of course, the question that we have to then ask is, okay, as I've been born again, what does it mean that I've died to sin? What does it mean to actually be dead to sin? And that's an important question. I've heard sometimes it described almost like someone has died to even temptation. You know, the idea being you take a corpse, someone whose body has expired, they are dead, and you try to tempt them to sin, they can't go there because they're actually 
physically dead. So, you know, like I have a real, you know, uh, every time I go to Gianni's Pizza, uh, you know, it's like, it's a problem scenario, you know. It's like I tell myself there's a certain kind of size that's appropriate to order. And then I'm always like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like basically like saving money to get one a little bigger and like bring the leftovers home. Like I'd be a fool financially, you know, not to get a little bit bigger. one. And then it's sitting there in front of my face and I'm very alive to the situation and it's like a slice or two or three more than is appropriate for a man my age and size you know kind of thing like it's just it's just there like I'm alive to it so the concept is you die physically hold that pizza up to a corpse there's no temptation it's not there it's not alive to these things is that what Paul is saying when he says we have died to sin if he is isn't that discouraging because you and me, we're walking around going, I don't, that's not how I feel. I experience temptation. I feel so often very alive to these things. There are temptations, there are leanings, there are desires that are very strong to me. So I don't know that I've died to even the possibility of temptation. And if that's what Paul had meant, when you die to sin, you die to even the possibility of sin in your life or the possibility of temptation in your life, then he would have just ceased to write what he wrote. He wouldn't have gone into Romans 7 and described his own personal struggle with his own flesh and sin, and he certainly would have, wouldn't have had to, had to write much of, if, if any of, Romans 12 to 15, describing to us what the Christian life looks like. Listen to some of the things that he had to say to Christians that we would not do any longer, Romans 12 to 15. He says, do not conform to this world. Do not think highly of yourself. Do not be lazy. Do not be prideful. Do not curse your persecutors. Do not avenge yourself. Do not be overcome by evil. Do not destroy other people with your Christian liberties. These are things that Paul would not have had to say if what he meant by you're dead to sin is you're not even going to do it. He had to say it to us because we do experience temptation. So if that's not what it means to be dead to sin, what does it mean? Well, he's not saying that sin is dead. He doesn't say sin died. He says we died. We died. When we died, sin didn't lose its taste, its flavor, its temptation, but it did lose its power. In other words, when I was in Adam, like we saw last week, when I was in Adam, I was lost, completely lost. I was completely under sin. I was sold to it. I was enslaved to it. You know what I had to do? I had to sin. I had to sin. There was no recourse. There was no other option. I had to sin. Sure, I was made in the image of God, so there would be glimpses of goodness in my life. This is one of the misnomers that people have about being lost and sold under sin, as if every single thing that a person ever does is bad and sinful. That's not the case. We're made in the image of God. I could create. I could do good. I could say words of kindness. But at the end of the day, I was bound under sin. I had to do it. But as a Christian, I've been transferred from being in Adam to being now in Christ. I sometimes will sin, but I no longer have to sin. I am free not to sin. 
is what Paul is telling us when he says that you have actually died to sin. Like in C.S. Lewis's Narnia, the witch cast the spell over Narnia, but Aslan eventually came and died, and the spell was broken. And that's what I am now under. The spell has been broken. The spell of sin has been broken. The effects of it are seen, but it no longer has the same power upon me as it had previously. You might remember in the book of Daniel, the three friends of Daniel who were renamed from their Hebrew names to the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men were brave. God had given Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king, a dream, which basically meant, hey, you're just a link in the chain of history. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar heard that dream and said, well, I don't want to be a link in the chain. I want to be the whole chain. So he made an image that represented himself that everyone would worship. And he gave the command and he said, uh, when the music plays, everybody must bow down and sing to my altar, my image, my idol. And so the music played and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, that's a fake God. It's not real. We worship the true and living God, the God of Israel. So we're not going to bow. And they stood. And some people told uh, Nebuchadnezzar about them, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, don't know if you guys got the memo, but um, the way it works is, like, you get thrown in the fiery furnace if you don't bow down, so we'll just try again. We'll have the music play, and their response was very courageous. They said, you know, if you throw us in there, that's up to you. Uh, we might die. Our God might spare us, and miraculously intercede for us, but we won't, there's no way we're gonna bow down to your idol. And when they said that, he went into a rage. He flipped out, and he told his guys, he said, you, you make the fires even hotter than they were before. And they became so hot that when they threw them into the furnace, the men that threw them into the furnace, they actually died from the exposure to that heat. And then Nebuchadnezzar looked, and he says, How many did we throw into the fire? They said three. And he said, well, I see four, and the fourth is like the Son of God as they walk in the midst. And then Nebuchadnezzar had to do something hilarious. He had to call them. He said, hey, come out of the fire. He couldn't go in and get them. He would die. He had to call them out of the fire. And they came out of the fire, they were unsinged, they were untouched, they had survived the fiery furnaces of Nebuchadnezzar, and then they were given positions and prominence and crowns and honor and all glory and all of that, and God himself was worshipped as a result. But those fires, they went through them. When they came out of them, they had a different relationship with that furnace than they had previously. You and I, as we died with Jesus, as we went into Christ, we died to sin. It's still there, there is still temptation, but it has an altogether different effect and influence upon us. The power that it had previously, it does not have any longer. We used to have to, now we don't have to enter into it. And Paul is saying, this is who you are, this is your identity, you've died to sin, why would you live any longer in it. Like Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 16, live as people who are free 
Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Have you used this freedom for a cover-up for evil? We don't want to live that way. We want to use the freedom that Christ has given us to live as servants of the living God. So the first way that we respond to this question, should I sin that grace might abound? We say, no way. No, I'm not going there, and here's why. I died to sin. That's my relationship with it. It's not alive. I'm not alive to it. I've died to it. I'm a new person now. Okay, so that's the first part of our our response. Now let's read what he says next, something that we need to know. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So I'm going to stop uh, right there. Uh, but he talks about the death of Jesus and being the death of Jesus so deep that it goes down to even the burial uh, of uh, Jesus. This is an interesting thing that Paul is doing. I, I remember years ago <clears throat> running on our little wreck trail, you know, out by Lover's Point. It's like a beautiful, what a little gift we have down there. It's such a cool little spot. And I was running, and there's all these signs, you know, as you are on that wreck trail, all these signs that kind of give, like, the rules of the wreck trail. And, and, like, a big thing is no motorized vehicles. You know, you can't, like, take your motorcycle and ride it on the wreck trail. You have to actually, you know, like, you can pedal a bicycle or a Surrey or, uh, you know, different things like that. You can run, you can walk or whatever, but you cannot have a motorized uh, vehicle. And so, like, one day I was down there, and I was running along getting close to Lover's Point, like heading in uh, towards Pacific Grove, and I'm, I'm running. And, uh, you know, you're passing. It was a busy day. There were all these, like, families and little children and stuff like that. And you're, like, dodging them and everything, and everybody's having a good time. And, uh, but as I'm, like, cruising, I look in the distance. It was, like, this long straightaway, and I see this very, very large man and he's riding on, uh, you know, it wasn't a motorcycle. It was like one of those uh, scooters that's like trying to be like a step below a motorcycle. You know what I'm talking about? Like kind of has like the motorcycle look and body and everything like that. But you get closer to it and you're like, bro, that's no motorcycle. You are on a scooter. Uh, but, and, and I see him and he's coming full speed, probably like 30, 35 miles an hour. He's just busting down the trail and i'm looking at this and i'm thinking about like children and surreys and bicycles and families and stuff like that i don't know what got into me but i got all sheepdog on the situation and i saw him and i just pointed at him i stopped running i pointed at him and he's there just riding i pointed at him and and as he's driving by i point at him and i'm like no 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 like i just everyone like on the wreck trail stopped they're like what is this guy's problem you know but i just like wanted him to understand like you're not allowed to do that you're going to kill somebody out here get on the street with your class c license like you can't do this you know kind of thing That so often is how people treat the message of the gospel. Can I do this? Can I do that? Am I allowed to live this way? Can I do that? And so often the the response of people is no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't practice this. You can't practice that. No, 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 no. And all these lines are drawn, and that's as deep as it goes. I want you to notice that's not where Paul goes. He says... 
No, we're not going to have that mentality. But then he says, there's something you need to know. I'm not just going to draw a bunch of lines. I'm going to tell you that you are identified with Jesus Christ. You need to know this truth. You need to know this reality. By the way, this was Paul's golden opportunity to say, you've totally misunderstood the gospel message. I'm not saying that. This was his opportunity to say, no, 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 no. It's not that free of a gift. This was his chance to say, no, you've misunderstood me. Like Someone has to really be serious about it. Someone has to really be legitimately like abandoning all sin. They, they have to do that. They got to be real, legit people all in. They got to walk away. They got to be serious, serious repenters of all of these things. They got to be so serious. It was, it was his chance to say all of that and basically to build a works righteousness. You have to do all these things and prove yourself to God before he will give you the gift of the gospel. Now, there is something legitimate about repenting of your sin and coming to the Lord, but Paul doesn't even go there at this point. He just says, you need to know something. If you're thinking to yourself that you can run off into various sins and do all these things as a born-again believer, if you think that you can abuse the grace of God in that way, you obviously don't know something. And you don't know that when Jesus died, you died. And when Jesus was buried, you were buried. He uses the word baptism here in these verses, but I think when he says it, he's using like the purest form of what the word means, to be immersed into, to be identified with. I don't think he's talking about water at this point. He's talking about the reason that we as believers want to go into the water and be water baptized. It's that when we became believers, when we received Christ into our lives, we were positionally, we died with Jesus, we were buried with Jesus, and we were raised with Jesus. And Paul, in his mind, he's saying, if you know this, how could you do that? If you know these things about yourself and who you are, what your new relationship to sin is like, why would you ever think that you can go in that direction? In other words, in Paul's mind, a person who understands this doesn't need no, 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 no. A person like this says, why would I ever go there? Because I am connected with Jesus Christ. I was it's like in the sight of God, I was on that cross that he was dying for my sin. He was brutally suffering for my sin. Why would I go back to that? He was, and I was so identified with him that I was put in the grave with him. I was buried with him, baptized with him in his death. Paul is teaching a radical new identity and reality in and with Jesus Christ. Do you have this understanding of your identity in Jesus? Do you know that you have been transferred that strongly to him? Do you know that it's like you died with him and were buried with him? In the eyes of God, that's what occurred. Here's what the Bible says about the guilt of sin in our lives if you're a believer. It is forgiven. It is cleansed. It is atoned for. It is covered. It is cast into the depths of the sea. It is removed as far as the east is from the west. It is blotted out as a thick cloud. It is cast behind God's back, and it is remembered against us 
no more. Like Naaman, when he came out of the water after the seventh time of dunking himself in the Jordan River at the command of the prophet, your flesh is no longer leprous, it is clean in the sight of God. You have a newness of life that God has given to you. You belong to him, you're brand new, you've died with him, you've raised with him. Do you understand that today? The person who hears all that and says, you know what, I'm just going to persist in sin, you do begin to wonder, have they really received the message of the gospel? Have they really understood the Lord? Have they really been born again? God will separate the wheat from the tares in his moment and on the last day. I understand all of that. But you would say, man, if this is what Jesus Christ has done for me, and this is the relationship that I have with sin, If I am truly dead to it, this is what I want to walk in. I think so many of us have a Martha attitude. Jesus came to Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died. They said, Lord, if you'd just been here, you could have kept him alive. Jesus was about to do something way better than that. And Jesus said to Martha, he'll rise. She says, Lord, I believe that he will rise on the last day. I believe in the future resurrection. I believe someday he's going to come back to life. And then Jesus walked over to that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what Jesus was demonstrating was that yes, there will be for every believer resurrection power in the future. But you and I have the resurrection power of Jesus right now, right now. We died with him, we were buried with him, and we've been raised to life with him. And his calling upon our lives is to know this, to understand this about our relationship with him so that we can say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So we died with Jesus and we were completely dead with Jesus in that we were buried with him For this purpose, let's read this at the end of verse 4. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What you have right there is like a header, a description, a title, if you will, of what we're going to study all the way through the end of Romans chapter 8. We're going to be studying the new life that Jesus has given to us. His goal, his desire for us, the scope of the gospel, is not just to save us then, but to give us the hope of newness of life right now. Right now. And that's what we're going to study over the next few weeks. We're going to discover how to walk and how to live in this newness of life. But what we have to settle within our minds and within our hearts is that that's what we want that that's what we crave. Because there's something in all of us, like the ancient Israelites who looked back upon Egypt and fondly said, oh, that we could eat meat like we ate in Egypt, oh, that we could have the delicacies like they had in Egypt. We think about all of that, but we forget the slavery. We conveniently forget the oppression 
We forget the difficulty of that life of sin. But he's saying to us, don't look back, but look forward. Be thinking about the newness of life that is possible in Jesus Christ. Have an attitude like Caleb, one of the original 12 spies who came to Joshua when he was 85 years old in the promised land and said, give me the mountain that God promised for me. There's giants on it, and I'm an old man, but it doesn't matter. My strength is like it's always been, and God is alive. He's going to give me the strength to go in and defeat those giants and to win this territory that God has designated for me. God has designated a newness of life for you and for me in Christ Jesus. Do we want to move forward and possess it and experience it? This ought to be the decision that we make in our hearts and lives. One of the ways that Jesus described this as we close this out together. When he talked to his disciples, he said to them in the Gospel of John, on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser, and you are the branches. If you abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. And the picture is so perfect. You have a branch connected to the vine. The vine is the source of life for the branch. The branch can bear no grapes, can yield no fruit, unless it's connected, unless it's abiding. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, abide in me. What is a branch doing? It's simply living in, it's existing in, it's hanging out in, it's connected to the vine. So you just hang out with me, you spend time with me, you're in fellowship with me. You open up my word, you pour over it, you cry out to me as best you can, you converse with me, and as you abide in me, as you do all of the things that connect with abiding, not for legalism, but for abiding's sake. You pray not to check off the prayer box, but because you know that life and vitality comes from me and I into you. And so you do that. You spend time in my presence. And as you do, my life comes pumping into your life and you bear much fruit. That sounds like newness of life to me. And that's what I, what I want to experience in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is building that huge case and saying, look, we died with Jesus. We were buried with Jesus and we were raised to life by and with Jesus. Now for many of us, what we simply need to have in our minds and hearts is this is more true than anything you've ever experienced in life. If you're born again, this is more true than any feeling or any emotion. This is more true than any experience. This is what God says of you if you're in Christ. And when God speaks, what God says is. So if this is his truth over us, it's for us to receive it and then to walk in this newness of life. That's what he says, walk. This is the point of it all. In order that, just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So let's go get that resurrection life together with Jesus, amen? That's what we're gonna be looking at over the next few weeks. Father, we thank you for truth that is so just incredible and far beyond our wildest hopes and dreams in a world filled with religions that are saying, do this, do this, do that, do this. We are so thankful 
that all of our activity, all of our actions, it comes after receiving this. Oh my goodness, Lord, that you have deposited righteousness into our account, that we have been seen by you, Father, as dead with Jesus, buried with Jesus, and alive with Jesus. How complete, how final this is. How real this is. How strong this is. And just as Jesus will never die, you've deposited that very same resurrection life into the lives of your children. We thank you for this marvelous, incredible, beautiful truth. It's really just astounding to us, Lord. So we want to agree with Paul. We will not take an attitude that we will sin so that grace might abound. But we will consider the incredible position that is ours in Christ, and we will then say, that's who I am. That's how I want to live. That's who I am. That's how I want to live. Lord, we receive it. We receive it. Maybe for you, you're here this morning. <clears throat> Your father is trying to put, an, put a, an identity upon you. Perhaps you've placed a label of shame or guilt upon yourself. He's trying to put a label on you, a definition upon you that will draw you out of that darkness to live experientially in the light that is yours in Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible gospel truth. As Paul has gone from depravity to justification, straight into glorification, but now here we get to see sanctification. That's what we pray, Lord. We pray that as a body of believers, we would become purer and purer and purer, living lives that bring you honor and glory. Would you help us, Lord? If there is in your life and heart something that you need to repent of right now, perhaps you've abused the grace of God, confess it to him right now. Say, Lord, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. Forgive me all the same and help me to walk in this newness of life that is mine in Christ. Thank you, Lord. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, he is calling to you. He loves you. He cares for you. He died upon the cross in your place. Your destiny was to have eternal separation from God. But Jesus made a way for you to dwell with God for all of eternity, to not be banished from his presence in outer darkness forever, in a place that is wailing and gnashing of teeth, but to be brought into the family of God eternally, to rejoice with God forever and ever, to be in his kingdom forever and ever. But your sin has kept you out but Jesus dealt with your sin on his cross. He rose from the grave 
If you believe in him, if you believe in what he did for you, you too can receive the forgiveness of your sin and dwell with God forever. Is there anyone this morning, you'd say, that's me. If that's you, as we're praying, would you just raise your hand right where you are, say, I I need to have the forgiveness and the cleansing of my sin. Is there anybody today in this service that describes you? God bless you there, I see you. Is there anyone else this morning you'd say, that's me? If you're in sanctuary too, go ahead, just raise your hand right where you're at, the Lord sees. God bless you back there, I see you. Wonderful. He loves you, he cares for you, he's calling you, he's drawing you. He wants to give you this incredible gift. God bless you, I see you as well, wonderful. If you've raised your hand this morning, if that's what's happening inside your heart, pray like this, say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me of all that I've ever done and ever will do. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place on his cross and for raising him back to life. I repent of my sin and ask that you would come into my life and help me now to live for you. Forgive me, God. Forgive me, God. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen.